And this evening we'll take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 46, but also turn to Mark 4, where I hope to read to you as well. We're in a season when, as the Protestant churches, we remember that more than 500 years ago now, Martin Luther, on the 31st of October, 1517, nailed to those doors in Wittenberg the opening salvo, if you will, of a renewal of the gospel, what we call the Reformation historically. As you think about the Reformation, one of the things that the Reformation was, was a way to think about and find refuge from fear. Seems very relevant, really, when you consider what's on the calendar here in the United States. Just in a couple of days on that same day as Reformation Day, many people are thinking about the most scary things they can possibly imagine. But what's the most scary thing you could possibly imagine? Apart from the wrath of God and the terror of standing under his judgment forever. It was really the Reformation pointing us back to our hope, our refuge in Jesus Christ that renewed that confident hope that there is no longer any need to fear. Friends, that means that as you come this evening and as we consider the word of God together, you may have many fears. It might not be simply the wrath of God, but springing from that ultimate fear is every other kind of fear, isn't it? Every other kind of fear that is embedded with the idea of punishment. Maybe it's a fear of your past. Maybe it's a fear of the future. Maybe it's a fear of what other people think of you. Maybe it's a fear of any possible thing. But consider your fears as we come to the word of God and find them thoroughly met in the word of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious triune God. We ask that in the reading of Holy Scripture, what you have given to us by the mouths of prophets and by your own Son, the final word, you would cause our ears to be opened, our hearts truly to receive the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob. May we hear your word. May we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be saved from all our enemies and all our fear. Help us, we pray. Open our understanding, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read first from Psalm 46, from which I'll be preaching this evening. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. 
Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Turn quickly then to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Page 839 in your pew Bibles. I'll begin reading in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? This is God's holy and precious and necessary word. When Jesus speaks to the winds and the waves, we're accustomed to thinking about this Glorious miracle. When Jesus speaks, peace, be still, we hear Psalm 46 echoed. Be still and know that I am God. Jesus is directly applying the words of Psalm 46 to himself. He speaks, and what happens? Here's all this chaos. Threatening forces of nature respond to his command. There's an immediate response. He makes, by this, an unmistakable claim. He is God. He is the Lord of hosts. Not just any God in any old pantheon. The true and living God, God alone, the Lord of hosts of all creatures, visible and invisible, the God of Jacob, who made a covenant with Abraham and kept it to his children and his children's children. Jesus is God alone. That's the claim that he makes. Now, I want to consider with you a little bit longer Mark 4, because earlier in that chapter, Jesus is speaking in parables, parables about the kingdom of God. That's how Mark opens. It's the opening salvo, if you will, of his entire ministry when he declares the kingdom of God is at hand. We know that his ministry is going to be about the kingdom. So he's declaring in those stories, if you will, figures of the kingdom. Those figures have to be interpreted. They have to be understood. This is how God works in speaking to his prophets. He gives them figures, dreams, visions, stories that have to be interpreted Well, notice what happens. Jesus tells these stories about the kingdom. And then he goes and he interprets it by his miracle of calming the storm. He's already done repeatedly what men could never do, cast out demons, healed incurable sicknesses. And all the while he's been interpreting this about his rule, his kingship, his lordship over everything, showing his rule of grace 
revealing that he's God. But here in Mark 4, he does something distinct. He rules over the forces of nature. Why this? Why this particular miracle? A further sign of his power that the disciples might actually recognize who he is and that we would too. And by faith, no longer fear. That's the purpose for you and I as we come to consider these texts together. We are meant to recognize who Jesus is, to believe him, and no longer be afraid. If you think about the disciples out there on the Sea of Galilee, appreciate that the sea is a very fearful thing. In the ancient world, it has particular overtones, but even here, think about Lake Michigan. I looked it up. I think there are more than 600-some-odd shipwrecks in Lake Michigan, maybe even more in Lake Superior. I don't know. But think about these large bodies of water. They're dangerous places, a little wind, a little storm, single misstep. They're going to be a catastrophe. Well, the Sea of Galilee is a dangerous place, a very dangerous place. You'll get out and leave the church this evening, get into your car and go home and probably not even remember that there are dangers associated with driving home. But if you get out on the Sea of Galilee, you know there's real danger Here are the disciples in the middle of dangerous circumstances, and Jesus speaks to wind, to waves. He rebukes also. Do you notice he doesn't, he isn't finished when he stops speaking to the the creation. He then turns to the anxious hearts of anxious disciples, and he speaks to them, and he says, why are you so afraid? What's his point? Am I not with you? How often does scripture tell us that God would have us not to fear? Jesus urges us not to be afraid. Whatever dangers there are around us, your heart, my heart, must respond and say, he's with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. Jesus Christ with his church. Therefore, we need not fear. That will be the central idea that I want to convey to you from Psalm 46. Jesus is with us, and so we do not need to fear. If you were looking at Mark chapter 4, now turn back and consider with me Psalm 46. The psalm here in verses 1 through 3 in particular is envisioning a kind of terrifying and cataclysmic disaster. Notice how the earth is giving way. Mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. The waters of the sea are roaring and foaming. Mountains are trembling at its swelling. This is not sort of entropy, the gradual degradation down of the creation. This is the most violent imaginable scene. There are earthquakes. There are floods. And if you got up to news like this today, you would have good reason to be concerned. This would be a terrifying event. Whatever's happening in the Middle East, this is worse. If mountains get thrown into the sea, something is really, really off. We're used to wars. We have never seen mountains colliding with the sea. Well, the disciples appreciate this. They have every reason to expect that they're going to die in short order. And so their language and their experience actually mimics part of the psalm, doesn't it? They see the winds. They see the waves. They're actually coming into the boat, it says. But this is worse. This is far more terrifying because if there's one thing that mountains do, they stay there. They don't move. Mountains are impregnable. I remember, my parents probably remember this too, 
a long time ago. We had the custom of driving across the country as a family, taking vacations, and at one point we made it out to the Crazy Horse Memorial. I don't know if any of you have been there. But the basic idea of the Crazy Horse Memorial is that someone thought it would be a good idea to start carving a monument into a mountain. And the idea was that this would take maybe 50 years. Well, it started in 1948, and nobody has any idea when this is going to be done. Because mountains don't move. They just don't move. But in this psalm, we find them moving. They're the most solid things on our planet. They're bigger than anything, stronger than anything any man has ever created. And here they are going into the sea. Nature is, as it were, the fabric of it just kind of coming apart. Everything is disintegrating. Think about what God said on the third day of creation. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And here we read Psalm 46 and the very opposite is happening. Everything is going back. This is not how it's meant to be. This is chaos. It's like God has accomplished his great purpose in his word. And now that's being undone. Things are coming apart. The world is running in reverse. We were in good order. Now because the world is under the power of our sin, our disobedience to the creator, there is destructive anarchy. Doesn't this sound like what you would expect at the end of the world? That's actually what Jesus says we should anticipate at the end of the world. Luke 23, he speaks with Psalm 46 language about the end of the age. Listen to Revelation, another place where it speaks like this. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the end of the world. I grew up in California. Maybe my mom and dad remember, and they're here tonight. Remember hearing people speculate fancifully whether California would one day fall into the ocean? I think there are still some people that would like that. But the United States Geological Survey has a very firm answer to that question. No, California is not going to collapse into the ocean. But how much does this sort of end of the world collapse captivate and have a powerful grip on our cultural consciousness. Think about this. We have doomsday clocks ticking down to midnight. We have warnings continually in our media of climate destruction and death by the sun. How many apocalyptic movies are there that come out every year? How many? Have you ever counted? This is what we think about all the time. We think about the end of the world. But the coming judgment is not the stuff of foolish legends, silly movies, or scientific speculation. The world is going to run in reverse. The world will be undone. And the reason it will be undone is because Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth, is going to draw near in judgment. This isn't just the language of everything coming apart in destruction. This is the language of God appearing. Listen to Psalm 18, verse 7. Speaking of the approach of Yahweh, the God who has made covenant with his people. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. 
This is what the world does when God approaches. Listen to Micah, the prophet, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him. That's terrifying, or it really ought to be. If the earth itself fears the coming of the God of the universe, how much more should we who have sinned against him be afraid? But this psalm is not intended to make you and I afraid. The shocking thing about even these opening verses is this. That even then, verse 1 tells us, even at that moment when the end comes and Jesus Christ appears and the world shakes and the mountains melt as he speaks, we don't need to be afraid because then, it, then in that moment, he will be our present help. When will we find that God is truly our refuge and our strength? In trouble, in the worst trouble. In trouble, he is most definitely proved to be our helper. There are various points in Israel's history where rocks are set up as memorial stones. Think of Samuel, who puts up the stone called Ebenezer. He puts it up, and it means that title, this is a stone of help until now, Samuel is saying, God has been our helper. Here it is, proved to you in a stone that's not going to move. That's what all those stone memorials were about in the Old Covenant, even the altars. They were not supposed to be necessarily places where God would somehow be particularly thought of as being unusually present, not some of these memorials not to be a place of worship, but to remind Israel, to remind God's people that God's help is solid. Past and future, it is solid, more sure than the rocks, more powerful, committed than the mountains that were formed by him. Indeed, as Psalm 90 says, before the mountains were formed from everlasting to everlasting, God is our God, our dwelling place. We are a people in need of help. That day is coming. Even now, the creation has its moments of upheaval. It rocks. It reels. How do you respond to that? Well, for most of us, our hearts do the same thing. They echo what's happening in the creation. It's very beautiful the way that the sons of Korah reflect back on their earlier psalm, Psalm 42, when they speak about our, our own soul. For instance, Psalm 42, 5, Psalm 42, 11, as well as Psalm 43, 5. Notice what it says here. I'll read from Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you roaring? Literally. Why are you roaring in this turmoil? Just like the sea. It's the same word for the sea. Why are you so upset within me? When God is your helper, when the Lord of hosts is really with us, the God of Jacob. Well, Jesus is with us when the world comes apart. But Jesus is also with us when the nations rage. Let's move now to verses 4 through 7. The sea roars. Nations rage, we read. Notice there, verse 6. Nations rage and kingdoms totter. The earth trembles, spears shake. 
But in Christ, the church is unmoved. The Christ, Christ has secured his people. Mountains, seas, kingdoms, nations, empires will be moved, removed, set up, taken down, and finally restored to their proper place. But in the middle of it all, we have no cause as God's people to ever fear because we belong to, verse 4, the city of God, the true Zion. The true Zion, which is described in Revelation 21 so beautifully as the church, the bride of Christ. And where is it that's so solid and secure? It's coming down out of heaven from God. Things of earth, headlines, news, political agendas, none of it affects what is happening in heaven. The city of God, the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is secure because we don't have our origin here, but in heaven itself. The city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, verse 4 says, would lead an Israelite singing this psalm to think about Mount Zion and the placement of the temple and David's palace and things of this nature. And Mount Zion is not really impressive. It's 2,510 feet in the air that might impress us here in Wisconsin. Go out west. It's not impressive. There are many higher mountains. Why is it that Zion, the city of God, is secure? You'd expect a high place to be a secure place. That's where you'd try to strategically set up your, your refuge, your defenses. Why is Zion so secure? Not because of her altitude. But because God is in her midst, God dwells among his people. The origin of the church is in the God who is in her midst. Other mountains, the tallest ones, the most secure, the most powerful ones, the ones that have never moved, the ones that seem so secure are going to fall. But one mountain, one city is not going to fall as the whole earth collapses, and that is the city of God, because God is in his people, the church will not fall. When there are terrors, when there is darkness, depression, uncertainty, economic trouble, when there are wars and rumors of wars, when there's loneliness, when we don't know what way to go, the Lord of hosts is with us. And here in verses 4 through 7, his presence is, in a beautiful way, represented by a river. There is, verse 4 says, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Notice what happens with the sea. What's going on? The sea is terrifying. You don't want to be out on the Sea of Galilee when there's a storm. But there's a river that will make you glad. Not necessarily a tame river, but a productive river, a river that flows like the rivers around Eden to make God's city, his people, productive and fruitful and living even in the midst of the worst storms. This river metaphor, this picture is used throughout scripture and sometimes it's quite literal. Think of the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. It had a spring, the Gihon Spring, and Hezekiah had the prescient foresight to dig a tunnel through rock. It's an impressive accomplishment to make that spring accessible within the walls of the city. 
where it could be used when the Assyrians came. And they did. They came up. The hordes of hundreds of thousands of God's enemies came up against the city of Jerusalem, and the city had water. That's the imagery. Well, think again. What happens is there they are surrounded. You know that that siege was broken, not by a mighty battle, but by a mighty God, and it occurred at daybreak. Now, some of us here will say, I'm not much of a morning person. Why not? Rescue in the scriptures always comes at daybreak. This is when it happens. Think of Exodus 14, verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. There it is. God's people are walking through it. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians were drowned. 2 Kings 19.35, again of Hezekiah. That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now, do you get the trajectory of this? I hope your heart is already saying, I know where this goes. I get where this is leading. Mark 16, verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And it was empty. It just so happens this is the first day of the week. Sunday morning has already come around. The sign of Christ's victory, his presence with his people, his life among his people, is ours to enjoy. Christ himself is the life and the strength at the heart of his city. There is a river that makes glad, not afraid, but glad, the city of God. Isn't this what Jesus says of himself? Everyone who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The rule, the kingdom of Jesus makes us glad forever, immovable and victorious he is our strength, our refuge, our life. He alone is our help in the desperate situations of the world. He alone can help us when all other hopes fail. He is, notice verse 7, our fortress. Inaccessible to everybody else, but not to his people. We're hidden, secure in Christ by faith, protected as our God, influenced by the world, without need for the world and radically beyond all that he has made, protects his people. This is the protection he freely gives to you. Do you believe it? If circumstances shake you, remember where your refuge is. It was never in circumstance to begin with. If conscience shakes you, remember where your refuge is, it was never in your own idea of self-performance. All along, our help has been in the name of the Lord, the God of Jacob, who is our fortress. Let's quickly move on then to verses 8 through 11, the conclusion of the psalm. Jesus is with us, and he is with us in particular to reveal his blessed name. What is his name? The Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob. And notice how we see him here. 
verses 8 and following. He makes wars, verse 9 says, to cease. In verse 8, there's this beautiful invitation. It's the same sort of invitation that we hear the prophets receiving. John repeatedly receives this invitation throughout his revelation. Come and see. Come look at your God. Look at what he's done. Come see here the mighty desolations of your God upon the earth. You want to know what the end of the world is like? Well, here it is in one figure for us. Bows are shattered. Spears are cut. Chariots, supply wagons are burned with fire. Desolation. My family and I, when we served in Uganda, in Karamoja, we're often told stories about the intensely brutal disarmament of the Ugandan government, how they came in, took the guns, and murdered many people. And that was evil. But you know, the consistent theme of the Karamojong was, we're so glad there's peace now. Isn't that an encouragement? There will be an end to all this warfare, even all the weapons of carnal warfare will be destroyed. There will be a final, a just and lasting peace of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. And all the conflicts are going to cease. Even we read in the prophets of this perfect peace that prevails, lions and lambs laying down together, serpents no longer biting. Doesn't that sound appealing? Doesn't that sound encouraging or refreshing? And that is not your comfort. That is not the comfort that the psalm holds out to you. We would love for wars to cease. We'd love for conflict to be at an end in relationships. But notice verse 10. What does Jesus say is the comfort of the Christian's heart? Be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is the bedrock of all our hopes. Not things are going to get better one day. That's a hopeful thing. No. Christ exalted over all things. That is what this world is made for. That is the most secure promise given to us. That is what our souls long for and so desperately need. Christ exalted. He will come. He will speak. He will be glorified. Everything will at last be under his feet. And he will be known. That's our comfort. Then why? Here we ought to ask some questions. Why the shaking of the creation that's talked about throughout the Psalms and the nations raging and wars taking place? Is this all taking place apart from the will and sovereign hand of God? Don't you think that in the boat there, that's kind of what the disciples are really suspecting. Maybe this isn't really in the hand of a sovereign Christ. They're terrified. This seems to be beyond Jesus. Here he is asleep and nothing's happening and we're going to perish. And so what do they say? Don't you care about us? Can't you see we're perishing? Do something, right? And it looked like they were perishing. It looked like they were about to die. 
That's what the unbelieving flesh automatically says when circumstance comes upon us that is hostile, difficult, has that end-of-the-world quality. He doesn't actually care about us. And here we are gravely mistaken along with the disciples. Isn't it true that the Christ into whom into whose hand all authority has been entrusted, who is the Lord of hosts, who is the God of Jacob, that he could have stopped the storm before it ever started. Now you have another question, don't you? So why did he permit it to start in the first place? If it really is under his control. Why wait until it looks like everything really has come to an end and we're going to die? The psalm gives you the answer so that you would actually know his name. So you would recognize your God. So that he would be exalted and glorified before you that you would know there is no other help but the great God of the universe who has come, taken our sins upon himself, and died on the cursed tree in our place. God intends for you to know and be satisfied in that. Now, what would the disciples have said if they actually believed? Jesus, we know you're God. We know you actually care for us. Save us. Jesus' purpose all along has been our faith and more than simply a momentary comfort in this world. He would have us to believe, but to believe by beholding his glory. Listen to his prayer in John 17, 24. This is so beautiful. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the storm. Why has Jesus given permission to the wind and the waves to rise up and even begin to take the boat down? That you might behold his glory that you might know his name and have a certain and solid hope and joy beyond failure, beyond sorrow, beyond this life, more solid than the mountains he created. A hope that is his from eternity to eternity, the glory he possessed from the beginning with the Father. On the last day, we know that the same voice that stopped the raging of the waters will come and cry out in command. First Thessalonians 4.16 tells us, everything created is going to hear. It's going to obey. It's going to go back to the right order. There's going to be peace. All will be still and he will be known because the Lord of hosts is with us. What is the very first thing that will be rightly ordered that has been disordered? First Thessalonians 4.16 again. And... The dead in Christ will rise first. There is no fear beyond the grave. There is no fear for the Christian in death. We will rise first. That is safety. It seemed like it was the most dangerous place, didn't it? Can you imagine? Out there on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. Who thought this was a good idea? So dangerous. But it was actually the most safe location in the entire universe. Jesus was there with his disciples. The Lord of hosts with them. Their refuge, their fortress with them. 
And this is yours and this is mine. Jesus cares when we feel like we're perishing. Yes, he cares. True perishing would be not to know him, not to behold his glory, not to know his name, not to be comforted by his presence. You, this evening, dear believer, know his name. And you have, by faith in his word, seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know him. Jesus holds sway over all these things. Whatever troubles you, whatever fears there are, whatever sea rages. And you notice what the outcome is for the disciples. We would expect that the end of the story might be that they end up just happy and content and they're not afraid anymore. And that isn't the end of the story. They started afraid. They're terrified by the end. Who is this? Who can control all the circumstances of all the creation, all the winds, all the waves? They are filled with, the language of the the text is, extreme fear. They're frightened out of their minds. Friends, you and I are meant to fear nothing but the Christ who makes all the creation obey. There is nobody and there is nothing bigger or more awesome or more glorious, more wonderful, more powerful, more filled with holiness, more filled also with grace than Jesus Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. We must fear such a Lord. How does he exercise his power? So remarkably. Everywhere he goes. Isn't this amazing? Creation actually goes back into the right place. Listen to how this trail of peace and righteousness and salvation plays out in Psalm 146. Who is this Lord of hosts? He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. This is what happens wherever Jesus is. Fear him. He's putting things back in the right order, and at last, all will be well. We live in a world of fears. We live in a world in which our neighbors are fearful, in which they're even prominently putting out of their lawns the things they're afraid of, and really, behind that, demonstrating their fear of death and judgment to come. What can you do? What will hold you up? Your credentials, your position, your church membership, your connections, experience, your weapons, your plans, your government, none of these things can possibly stand on the day of judgment. A Christian says this alone. My God is able to deliver me. My heart will be still. It's striking that the reformers had many fears. Luther was known for all of his bluster and all the things that we know about him and kind of the heroism he has within the Protestant tradition. Luther was a man of tremendous fear. He had a lot of reasons to be afraid. He encountered tremendous trouble in his life, sickness, people against him. Perhaps the worst, think of there what happens as he's going up to the Council of Worms. He says his piece, so to speak. I have to stand by my conscience. My conscience is captive to the word of God. What happens immediately after that? The emperor, not a king, not a local magistrate, the emperor says he is persona non grata number one and issues a decree 
for his arrest and death. I don't know what could possibly make you more afraid. Luther's going home. What happens to him? You can only imagine that his fears would be even worse. He's kidnapped by people he doesn't know. It looks like death is now imminent. And in God's kind providence, where is he taken? He's taken to a fortress, the Wartburg Castle. And there he is, meditating for months on the word of God and on this psalm, what becomes his psalm. It has been said that in those times of deep discouragement and depression, he would sometimes turn to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, in the midst of his fears, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. And we can do that too. Let's pray. Gracious, triune, powerful, glorious God, Lord of hosts, God of Jacob, O oh, Jesus, we adore and worship you who have power over all created things, into whose hand all authority has been given. We worship you that you are also not merely filled with holiness and the right to execute the justice of God. You have taken that justice in yourself and you hold out to your people continually grace, freedom from fear of all things in this creation. We praise you, O Christ, that in the worst moment of our life, at the very end of the world, we can know this with confidence. The Lord of hosts is with us, for us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Deepen our foundations in this truth and reality, we pray. Persuade our hearts to believe there is no cause for fear in all the world. Teach our hearts, O oh God, to worship such a Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.